All right, well, we got a lot of ground to cover, and I tend to talk a lot, so we should probably just jump right into it. Uh, we are in the final part of the series we've been in for the past couple of weeks called Aftermath, and we've been uh, looking at what happened in the, the, the events surrounding the resurrection and the aftermath of, of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It was this, this moment in history when the world changed, and the Jesus movement, this thing called the church, was launched, and, and the world hasn't been the same ever since, and so we're, we're kind of looking at, hey, the first century followers of Jesus that were there on the ground when things got started, how did they navigate their faith, and what can we learn from them as 21st century followers of Jesus? There's so much that they have to offer in terms of, hey, what's it look like to follow Jesus in my day-to-day life, and so if you've missed any of this, you can check all these parts out on the website, but uh, just a quick recap, the first week we talked about the, the foundation of our faith is one thing and one thing only. The foundation of our faith, of our hope, of the boldness that we have, of the message that we have is the resurrection of Jesus. It, it's, a, it's a pinpoint moment in history. The whole thing rises and falls on the person of Jesus and his resurrection. He rose from the dead. That's like where we plant our flag. Last week, we, we talked about this struggle in the early church uh, of mixing and matching and blending uh, the different covenants. Um, a covenant is just like this idea of an arrangement that God had with different, uh, different people. And so the early church was primarily Jewish for the first uh, several years because Jesus came as the fulfillment of the, uh, of the Jewish scriptures. He was the Jewish Messiah, but it was to do something for the entire world. And so these early followers of Jesus, they were holding on to this old covenant, which was between God and the nation of Israel, but then also trying to step into the new thing, the new covenant that Jesus brought, which was between God and everybody on the planet, that, that because of Jesus, the doors are thrown open. Everyone's invited in uh, simply through faith in him. And, and they're, they're trying to figure out, what do we do with both of those? And, uh, and they were holding on to the old, not fully embracing the new. And sometimes we, we struggle with the same thing. Um, and we said that a lot of that has to do with how sometimes we are handed a Bible. If you've got a Bible, you were given one as a kid or, or even as an adult, maybe when, when you came to faith or you got baptized or you went through confirmation, depending on your faith tradition. And, and sometimes it's just like, well, it's God's word, just do what it says. And, and no one takes the time to stop and say, well, wait a minute, there's like different parts and there are these different covenants. And, and there's actually, it's a narrative, like it's a story and we're at a particular like point on the timeline of, of that story. We're at the, the, the post-Jesus part, again, where he's opened this up for, for everyone, um, and, and so sometimes we tend to mix and match and to blend the two together, but the early church, as they struggled through that and they wrestled with that, they eventually uh, got past that, um, and we're working on that as well, but we kind of we started looking at that last week, the early workings of them working through the old and the new, and it really comes to a head in what we're going to talk about uh, together in our time uh, in our time today is really where it all gets hammered out. And so if you were with us last week, we, we were introduced to a guy by the name of, of Paul, the Apostle Paul, when we first meet him. His name is Saul of Tarsus. He's not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. He hates Christians, wants to destroy and wipe the church off the face of the planet. But he has an encounter with Jesus and it changes everything for him and he becomes like the biggest uh, like proclaimer of the message of Jesus in a church planter and starts all these churches all around the Roman Empire. Um, so we, we ended things last week where, where Paul and his friend, another guy named Barnabas, were in the city of Antioch proclaiming the message of Jesus and teaching people and discipling people there. Now Antioch was what was called a Gentile city. So the Gentiles, you read the term Gentile in scripture, we talk about that as church, it just refers to 
anybody who isn't like of Jewish descent or of the nation of Israel. Anybody else was considered the Gentiles. So you had the Jewish people, you had the Gentile people, and the city of Antioch, it is primarily Gentiles. Now there are some Jewish people there, there's some synagogues there, but mostly it's Gentile people, and this is first century Roman Empire, so Greco-Roman thinking people, uh, they, they worship the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods, pagan worship, go to the different temples, celebrate Zeus and all, all of those things. But Paul and Barnabas are in this city surrounded by all these different kinds of people and these Gentile people are, are just accepting the message of Jesus. It's like, hey, God has done something in the world through the person of Jesus. Uh, he's revealed himself to us. He died for sin. He rose from the dead. We've seen him and you're invited to be a part of what God's doing. So all these Gentile peoples are like, Yes, we want in on that. And the church is exploding and growing like crazy. God's changing lives. But not everyone was so excited about that. There's another group of people who are back in, in the, the Jewish church in the area of Jerusalem. We kind of looked at them a little bit too. They're known as either uh, the circumcision group or the circumcision party or the Jewish believers. Uh, and, and these are the ones that, hey, they'd grown up Jewish and they, they put their faith in Jesus as the fulfillment of their story and their scriptures. He's their Messiah, but they're still having a hard time holding on to their old way of relating to God and, and stepping into the new thing that Jesus is doing. And so these Jewish followers of Jesus, they go to Antioch as well, behind the Apostle Paul, and, and they kind of tell the church there, hey, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't give you the, the entire message. They left some of it out, that yet you got to accept Jesus, but you also have to embrace uh, Judaism. You've got to embrace the, the entire uh, old covenant as, as well. It was this idea of like a Jesus plus kind of message. It was like, hey, Jesus it isn't enough. Like, Jesus is the starting point, but there needs to be more than just that. So they say, you accept Jesus, but then also you embrace the old covenant law. It was Jesus plus gospel. And, and while, you know, sometimes today we, we don't, maybe it's not uh, Jesus plus Judaism, but we have our own versions of Jesus plus gospel in different uh, parts of the church, different places, different denominations, different uh, areas of the country, different areas of the world will say, well, it's Jesus plus you know, here's a dress code, or it's Jesus plus a certain way of living, it's Jesus plus a certain political affiliation, it's Jesus plus a certain style of worship, and, and Jesus is most important, but you gotta do all these things too. And let me just say, the minute the gospel becomes Jesus plus anything, it's no longer the gospel. It's not the good news of Jesus any, anymore as soon as we tie anything else to it. And so Jesus plus Judaism was, was the struggle um, in the early church. And it was the idea, the message, the, the, the tension was keeping the law of Moses, so the, it's what we're calling the old covenant, the law, the prophets, the law of Moses, that keeping that law was a requirement for salvation and inclusion into the church. It was a requirement, if, if they're saying, hey, if you, if you want to be saved, if you want to be right with God and, and be a part of his kingdom and, uh, you know, and, and be in right relationship with him, yes, you need Jesus, but you also have to follow the law of Moses. But then more than that, inclusion into the church. One of the, the unfortunate things that so often we've done in modern Christianity is we've made um, following Jesus all about, it's just my personal salvation and you know, where I go someday when I die. Um, but it's so much more than that. That when we begin following Jesus, it's not just a personal thing. We are actually welcomed in and invited into a family that God is forming. Like the church is the new covenant family of God, and it's messy, and it's hard, but it's beautiful, like so many of our families are. And so their message is, hey, if you want to be right with God, and you want to be included in this new covenant family, it's Jesus, but also embrace the law of Moses. 
That's where we pick up our passage today, uh, Acts chapter 15. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, that's great. It's going to be on our screens as well. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Uh, we read this, that certain people came from Judea. That's like the, the area where the Jewish church is located, Jerusalem, Judea, the surrounding areas. So certain people came from Judea to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are with the Gentile believers. And they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so for, for us, circumcision is just like, it's a medical procedure. It's like, okay, you, you do that, you don't do that, whatever. But for the Jewish people, that was the sign and the symbol and the outward mark of the, the law of Moses, of the old covenant. That for a, a Jewish man to be in that covenant relationship with God that says, I'm living by the old covenant, the, the, the thing that set you apart and said, yes, I've signed up for that, and yes, this defines my life, was circumcision. And it was more than just that act. It embraced and embodied, it, it, it was a picture of embracing the entire Old Covenant law, which was like 613 commands. And so all the dietary laws and the purification laws and the different rituals and the different festivals and the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system, like circumcision was the sign of saying, I am, I am in on all of that, I'm a part of that covenant. And so that's their message. You've got to embrace the old covenant to be saved. Now this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch. They've been there for like two years working with these people, teaching these people. And they're seeing God work and move and change lives and change hearts. And, 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 and then this other group shows up and basically says, well, you're not doing it right. Like, wait, wait, God is moving and he's working, he's changing people. Yeah, but you're not doing it the right way. You haven't given them the full message. And so Paul and Barnabas, it says they're brought into sharp dispute with them. They're a little bit fired up. They're a little agitated by this, as you might imagine. They're like, are you kidding me? We've given our lives to this and we're seeing God change people's lives and you're saying we're not doing it right? And so Paul and Barnabas, they were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas and some other people from the church in Antioch, they're, they're kind of sent, they're commissioned to say, hey, go to Jerusalem and figure this thing out. Go see the apostles, go see the elders and, and get this, this tension, this problem that we're having. Go get this worked out and figure out one way or another. Do we have to embrace Moses or do we not have to? Uh, and it's interesting that they actually have to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders. They can't just figure it out there where they're at because they have no they have no source to go to where they're at. You know, if, if we arrive at, at an issue today, we're trying to figure out how to live or how we should answer something, you know, we, we have the, the incredible ability that we can like, hey, I can go to scripture. I can see, hey, what does scripture have to say about this? But at this point in history, like the Bible doesn't exist yet. We don't have this yet. Now, the, the Jewish people would have had the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish scriptures, and that would have been kept in synagogues on scrolls and things like that. But these are Gentile Christians living in Antioch. They're like, what do we go to? The Apostle Paul, who's here, and he writes about half of our New Testament, all these different letters. This is only about 20 years after the resurrection. Paul most likely hasn't started writing yet. If he has, it's very early on, just some of his really early letters, and they're not being widely circulated yet. Uh, the gospel writers, most likely at this point, haven't written yet. Mark, we think, is probably the earliest gospel. It's probably not been written yet, and if it has, it's very early on, and it's not being widely circulated yet. And so there's no, oh, hey, yeah, just grab that letter or grab that you know, account that John wrote, and we'll get this figured out. They don't have that. And so, and so instead of looking to a text, they're like, we're going directly to the source. We're going to go to Jerusalem and talk to the apostles. We're going to talk to the guys that were the eyewitnesses 
of what Jesus did and said. You know, those that spent three years with him, they saw him, they heard him teach, they saw him perform miracles, they, they witnessed him be crucified, they saw him raised from the dead. Like, let's go talk to them. Let's get as close to the source as we can to get this figured out. Now, eventually, those guys that they're going to talk to um, are who brought us what we would now call the New Testament, these different historical documents that guys like Matthew and, uh, and Luke and Mark and, and John write down, and Peter writes letters, and John writes letters, and, and now we have that that we can turn to, but they're like, we don't have words on a page we can turn to. We're going to go talk to the people who are on the ground, and so they go to Jerusalem to figure this out, uh, and there's a guy there by the name of James who we're going to meet, and he's like the head of the Jerusalem church. Uh, James is the younger brother of Jesus, like the half-brother of Jesus, same mom, different dad, obviously. Um, you know, Jesus has that whole, like, God is my father thing. James had Joseph as his father. Uh, but so James, what's so interesting about him is he's not a follower of Jesus when Jesus is doing his earthly ministry. But he becomes one. The only thing that convinces James is after the resurrection, he's like, oh, I guess my brother wasn't crazy after all, because when someone dies and comes back to life, you realize, oh, maybe they really were right, and they're, that's, he's my Messiah, and so James becomes the, this leader in the, in the Jerusalem church, so he's there kind of overseeing this meeting, and here's the agenda for this meeting, that the apostles and the elders are getting together, is what will be the Gentiles' relationship to the Old Covenant? what we would call the Old Testament. Now, the whole Old Testament is not the Old Covenant, but most of it is, and it's, it's included in there. And so what would be the Gentiles' relationship to the Old Covenant or the law and the prophets or the law of Moses? How would Gentile people relate to that? And it wasn't just a question that was being answered for the first century Gentile followers of Jesus. It would determine how we relate to the Old Covenant because we don't talk about ourselves in this term anymore, but we're Gentile Christians. We're not Jewish by our heritage. At least I don't think any of you are. Maybe you are. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, we can talk about that sometime, but we're Gentile followers of Jesus. And so the, the thing they're figuring out is, okay, if, if, if Gentile people, if non-Jewish people are going to follow Jesus, how do they relate to the law of Moses, to the old covenant? Do, do they have to live and believe and behave like Jewish people, to follow Jesus? Or can you just start following Jesus from wherever you're at? So they get together to meet this, the, the answer to this question. Verse five says that some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, uh, which is just blows my mind, the Pharisees were the group of people that as Jesus is, is doing his earthly ministry, that they're always butting heads with Jesus. Like they're always trying to get Jesus tripped up in what he says. They're trying to get him into trouble. Uh, they're, they're kind of a part of that group that's like, we gotta get rid of this guy. And now there are actually Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders who are followers of Jesus. Because again, when someone dies and raises from the dead, your perspective on who they are changes. But they're experts in the law, the old covenant, the law of Moses. And so they bring a lot of that with them. So they stand up and they say, the Gentiles, and here it is again, they must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. It's great that they want to follow Jesus, but they're going to have to keep the old covenant law as well. And so the apostles and the elders, they met together to consider this question. And Luke, who's recording this for us, doesn't, doesn't tell us how long they met for. Was it hours? Was it days? Was it weeks? But he says they met together to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. This is the Apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' uh, 12 disciples, one of the kind of inner circle. The Apostle Peter gets up and says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you 
that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So this is something, if you were with us last week, that we, we looked at. Peter has this uh, encounter with Jesus. He has this, this dream in which he's told, hey, Peter, don't consider anything impure or unclean that I've, I've made clean. So like, I've done something new. The old dietary law, like that's off the, off the table. You, the Gentiles, they're welcomed in. And Peter goes into the house of this Gentile named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion and takes the message of Jesus to Cornelius and his family. Uh, and, and they become followers of Jesus and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is reflecting back on that. And this had happened at this point, it was several years before this. And so Peter's like, oh yeah, you guys remember several years ago when, when I had this encounter and I went into the Gentile's house. He's reflecting on that. It says, you know, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips and believe the message of the gospel. And God, this is so huge, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And so when Peter is, is in Cornelius' house, he's given them the message of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, like God, his personal indwelling presence comes and fills the Gentiles. And, and the Jewish believers who are there with Peter are astonished by this. They're like, no way, no way, this is crazy that God would come and, and live and dwell within these Gentile believers. We, we can't believe it. And Peter's like, yeah, I remember how crazy that was. And that was God showing that, that like, there's no favoritism here. He's, he's accepting them. And the way that he ends that is, those last few words, we, we can't begin to imagine how different of, of a shift in, in how we view God and how God works in the world, how this was for them. This 21st century, again, Gentile Christians, what he says, he says, just as he did to us. In other words, Peter's saying, look, for those of us that are Jewish Christians and those Gentiles that are becoming Christians and following Jesus, like, we're on the same ground here. That God accepts us and them the same way. He doesn't play favorites. Like, Peter is saying, God has thrown open the doors, like, the doors into the kingdom of heaven, the doors of the kingdom of God, like, right relationship with Jesus and living as his kingdom people. It is open to everyone through faith in Jesus. He says he did not discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. And he says, now then, why, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And so Peter's addressing you know, his, his Jewish brothers and sisters. He's like, listen, why would we expect the Gentiles to live by this old covenant? Why would we expect them to live by this law when we ourselves, talking about the Jewish Christians, he's like, when we haven't been able to live by it. Like, it's our covenant. We've been trying to do this our entire lives. Our people have been trying to do this for generations, and we've not been able to do it. Why would we expect the Gentiles to, to jump in and be able to do it? Peter could point to his scripture, what we would call the Old Testament, and say, look, this is one big story about how we are the covenant people of God, but over and over again, we have failed to be the covenant people of God. We haven't been able to do it. Why would we expect them to be able to do it? And the beauty of, of Jesus is we were unable to be the covenant people of God. We were unable to be the true Israel, but Jesus came to be the true Israelite. The Jewish people couldn't do it. The Gentiles aren't going to be able to do it, but they don't have to because Jesus has done it on their behalf. So he says, no, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We're saved, they're saved. It's all, it, he's like, it doesn't matter anymore. 
So are you following, like have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you following him? That's what matters. The implication that what Peter is saying is like we, we can't expect the Gentile Christians to move in our direction. If anything, we should move in theirs. Like Jesus wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be Jesus and anything. It wasn't going to be Jesus plus anything. It was, wasn't going to be Jesus in addition to anything. It was Jesus, and that's it. That, that, that he is the whole thing. It wasn't Jesus plus the, the old covenant. When Jesus is doing his earthly ministry and he's teaching this famous passage called the Sermon on the Mount, he actually addresses this. He says, like, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's how, that's how, how they talk about the old covenant, their scriptures. It's like, I haven't got, come to get rid of them. Like, there's nothing wrong with the old covenant. It was perfect, it was beautiful, it was meant to do something, and it's important. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill it. I've done it, and now I'm doing something new. And everyone, everyone is invited in. And so Peter sits down. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And so, I I mean, we're kind of left to fill in some details, but I can just picture Paul and Barnabas getting up after they've heard Peter talking. They're like, yeah, guys, you gotta listen. We've been there for two years and you won't believe the things we've seen God doing. You won't believe how we've seen him move among these Gentile people and their lives have been changed and their hearts have been changed and their families have been changed. And because of that, we're watching a whole city be transformed and we're seeing God move and work among these people. And so Paul and Barnabas are like, we're right there with Peter. The God is welcoming the Gentiles in. Verse 13 says, when they finished James spoke up. Remember, James, is he's, he's like the leader in the Jerusalem church. He's the spokesperson there, and he gets up, and he says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, and Simon was another name that Peter went by, so Simon, Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles, and what he says next is so important. He says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. You see, James knows that he's got a Jewish audience there in front of him. It's like we, we've, heard, we've heard from Peter, and Peter is talking about uh, his, his experience, what God has done in and through him, and, and thus, and through, through him in and through the Gentiles. And we've heard from Peter and Peter's experience, and Peter's account, and we've heard from Paul and Barnabas and their experience and their account. But it's as if James knows, he's like, I know I'm talking to my Jewish audience here, and other people's just experiences and what they've said is, is true isn't enough, but let's point to our scripture. And so James, in front of his Jewish audience, points to the Jewish scripture, and he says, we have these accounts of, of what God has been doing from our, our brothers here, but our scriptures are in agreement with this. And he quotes from the prophet Amos. He says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Talking about King David, um, the nation of Israel, the line of David that the Messiah would come from. It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And there's a purpose for it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. So James is like, we're seeing it. Like it's not, it's not just that, that Peter's got this story and Paul and Barnabas have this story, but, but our, our prophets point to this as well. And then he gets to this conclusion statement and it, it's, it's, it's such a powerful statement. It's, honestly, it's the heartbeat if you've been around here for a while. It's like what hope community as a church, what we were born out of is Acts 15, 19. We love this statement and, and James comes along and he says, okay, it is my judgment therefore. That therefore means like 
in, in light of everything that we've just discussed, we're here at this council in Jerusalem, we're trying to figure this thing out, and there's the debate between, do you have to embrace the old covenant, do you not have to embrace the old covenant, in light of that, in light of what Peter said, in light of what Paul and Barnabas have said, in light of what our prophets say, James says, therefore, taking all of that into consideration, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult. It shouldn't be hard. We shouldn't put up unnecessary obstacles or barriers to people who are trying to pursue a relationship with God. We shouldn't make it difficult. And in this context, with what they're talking about, what was the thing that was making it difficult? It was the Old Covenant. That's what this entire conversation, this entire council has been about. It's like the thing that's making it difficult for the Gentiles is trying to make them embrace Judaism. We shouldn't do that anymore. We should stop that. That that people are invited into a relationship with Jesus, they're invited into his kingdom, and they're saying that that God's arrangement with Israel should no longer be a part of that equation because Jesus has done something new for everyone. Now what's, what, that, that's pre- that would have been pretty shocking to this, this group to begin with. But what he says next is, is equally as kind of disruptive because he's, he's, this decision isn't being made in a vacuum. I think sometimes we'll forget that if we turn especially to things in the, in the New Testament like the letters that are written, a lot of the stuff like the Apostle Paul writes. Sometimes we think that like, that's just the apostles are writing theology. Like, here's, here's how you should believe and behave and stuff, but we forget that they were writing to real people. Every time the apostle Paul wrote, he had a very specific audience in mind, or when Peter or John, when they write letters, it's like, oh, there's a church in the city that we're thinking about, and, and we're addressing very real issues with them, and it, it's like they're, they're pastoring these people. They're leading them and helping shape them to be followers of Jesus, and so as they make this decision at this, this council in Jerusalem, They know that 300 miles to the north, there's a group of Jesus followers in the city of Antioch, like, waiting for what their decision's going to be. There's a group of Gentile Christians in Antioch that are like, how do we follow Jesus? What do we do? What's the answer? When they come back, what are they going to tell us? Do we get to just keep following Jesus like we did, or is next week at church, they're going to be like a drive-through circumcision clinic in the parking lot? Like, that's what they're waiting. Like, what do we do? How, how do How do we navigate this? And so, let's not make it difficult but then they give some specific instructions to the church um, in Antioch. Verse 20 says, instead, instead of making it difficult, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Like, what? Like, that's weird. Like, like, let's not make it difficult. Yay, that just took a really weird turn, James. Like, what are you talking about? Strangled meat and blood and immorality. Like, what is this? On a surface reading, we're like, it seems like, they're like, let's not make it difficult, but that's too easy, so can we just cherry pick some things from the Old Testament? Like, let's take all 613 commands and laws and put them in a hat and pull a couple out and see what happens. It kind of seems like that's what's going on, but that's, that's not what's going on. Like, why these particular ones? Why these particular commands? I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it make sense to choose some different ones? If you're going to pick random Old Testament commands, wouldn't it be like, how about maybe like, don't murder? That's probably a good, we should probably, like that one wasn't included. Shouldn't we include that one? Or like, don't, don't steal, um, you know, don't lie. Or maybe some commands about like generosity, about like care for the, the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow. That's all throughout the Old Covenant. It's all throughout the New as well. Like, why not pick some of those ones? 
I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't things like that be a lot more practical to the day-to-day lives of people following Jesus? He had something specific in mind. They had something specific in mind whenever they wrote those. We gotta remember again the context of who they're writing to and the struggle and what that church was. And remember always, they've, they've already decided this isn't about salvation or inclusion into the church. That's been settled. We shouldn't make it difficult. Jesus and Jesus enough. But we need to tell them some instructions here. So within that context and what's going on, those imperatives had nothing to do with keeping the law of Moses. Those were more about keeping the peace and the unity within the church. The, the, the entire council in Jerusalem has, them, has been them saying, hey, us Jewish believers, we need to move in the direction of the Gentiles. We need to make some concessions on their behalf. We need to die to maybe what we want so that, so that they can more easily and better follow Jesus. And this is them asking the Gentiles to do the same thing. Saying, hey, we've made major concessions for you Gentiles so you can follow Jesus. Now we're gonna ask that you make some concessions and consider your Jewish brothers and sisters. Because in these churches, there's Jewish believers and there's also Gentile believers. And, and this idea of like, especially like those dietary laws, like food polluted by idols and meat with the blood in it and strangled animals, like those kind of things, the, the dietary laws, the, the ideas of, of cleanliness and purification, that was so hardwired into the psyche of, of the Jewish people. They had a hard time breaking away from that. We saw that with with Peter's story last week as he just had this internal struggle of like, oh, I know Jesus has done this new thing, but man, I'm still hardwired to the the old covenant. And that was a struggle. And and the hope and the command here is all about, look, we want unity in the church. We want want unity in the church. There would be, the, the, the heartbeat behind the apostles was, hey, there is going to be one church. There's not going to be a Jewish church. There's not going to be a Gentile church because there, there is not more than one body of Christ. There is only one body of Christ. So we are going to find a way to live together and to get along and to pursue Jesus together. And we are, going to, we are going to put aside some of our own desires so that we can be more welcoming to those who struggle in certain areas. Uh, the Apostle Paul even talks about this in one of his letters. Uh, in his letter in 1 Corinthians, he, he talks about this idea of food polluted by idols. Because what would happen in the pagan cultures, they would, they would sacrifice an animal to one of these pagan gods, and then they would take the meat and go sell it in the market for people to, to eat. And there's people who are Christians who are buying this meat and eating it, and they're like, well, is that okay? Is that not okay? And, and Paul, as he, as he writes to the Corinthians, basically says, food is food. Like, food is just food. Now, now it's, a, it's a matter of, like, personal conscience. If, if you feel like it's not right for you, then it's not right for you. If somebody else does, it's fine. But the most important thing is what he says after that. He says, but don't, don't you dare cause somebody to stumble. Like food is food, but if you know you eating that food is going to cause your brother or sister to stumble, don't do it. It's this idea like within the church, hey, we're a family and we struggle with different things and I'm not going to intentionally do something that's going to make you struggle. So that, that's where that part of that kind of command comes from. And then there's the other part of abstain from sexual immorality. Now this would have been a, a particularly tempting struggle for the people in Antioch. The, the Greco-Roman culture, pagan people, the, the, the extreme sexualization of first century Roman culture would blow us away. Like, I, I sometimes hear like kind of conservative-leaning Christians today be like, oh my goodness, our culture, like it's so sexualized and everything is so bad, which is true, and it is causing damage, and it's like rewiring our brains in some pretty messed up ways, but it's nothing compared to the Roman Empire. I mean, what was okay and celebrated to do to women, to children, to slaves, it was just, 
we can't even begin to imagine it. So they're coming out of that kind of a culture. They're also coming out of a religious system in which the worship of the pagan gods was like, hey, you go to the pagan god's temple, you bring him an offering, you visit the temple prostitute, and then you go home. And so they're coming out of that kind of a background like, hey, 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 we know that's your story. We know that's what's all around you. You would do best to avoid that altogether. It's actually interesting because a few verses later, they, they include the little letter that they write to the the followers of Jesus in Antioch, and that's how they say it. They, they list these things and says, you would do well to avoid these things, farewell. And it's just like, hey, stay away from that because it's gonna get you all kinds, um, all kinds of messed up. But this is, it's, it's, a, it's a command to avoid immorality altogether. But what's important is it's, it's not as defined by the old covenant. They don't include chapter and verse after this, and these are Gentile Christians who don't have an old covenant but remembering that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and others had been in that city for several years teaching these, fo- these people, hey, here's how you follow Jesus, here's how you do it. And, and Paul would be no doubt addressing the idea of, of morality and how you carry yourselves over and over and over again. And we get a glimpse into what, what Paul teaches in all kinds of life, but in, including the area um, of our sex lives. Because as human beings, we're sexual creatures. God made us that way. And Paul's like, hey, just like everything else, that's an area that comes in line under Jesus. But what's interesting is when the Apostle Paul teaches on that, he doesn't leverage the Old Covenant. He never says, hey, you need to live this way because, you know, and you know, quotes something in Exodus or Leviticus. His, his teaching would always come back to Jesus' new covenant command of love one another the way that I have loved you. Like your ethic for life is I look at Jesus on the cross and that informs everything. So when Paul talked about relationships or sex, he would say things like, hey, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Lay your rights down, lay your life down, serve one another, submit to one another. He would say things like honor one another. He would say, as it relates to you, don't you know, like if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. He would say, hey, you know, you're made in the image of God. He would, he would teach things like, don't you know that as a follower of Jesus, you are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God himself lives in you. And he lives in the person sitting next to you and him and her and, and all of these followers of Jesus. So that's what Paul would leverage. Think like, this is the ethic to live by. The go-to for like ethics and how we are to carry ourselves in, in the early church, it was this idea of, of the cross. It was cruciform living. So often in, in modern like in a modern evangelical tradition, we've boiled the cross down to, okay, the cross is what saves you, and then after you get saved, like we, we don't think about that anymore. But the ethic in the first century church was the cross is what informs my entire life. It's a cruciform life. It's, if I want to know how do I carry myself and how do I live, I look to Jesus on the cross that says, I'm dying to what maybe I want or my desires or my needs so that I, because I've been bought with a price and I'm laying down my life so I can live for, for the love of, of the other next to me. That was what, what guided them and that was what Paul leveraged over and over again. And as a teacher of, of the law, again, Paul used to be a Pharisee, so he knows the old covenant. He would leverage that. He would let the Old Covenant inform what he taught and fill in the gaps. He would, he would quote from the Old Covenant sometimes, but he would always draw everything back to, hey, here is how you have been loved by Jesus. And you model your life after that. And that's what they were called to. That's what they were called to. So the, the, the new, that's that New Covenant way of living. What's crazy about the New Covenant way of living is it's a lot less complicated, but it is a lot harder it's a lot less complicated, but it is so demanding. I mean, the thing with like laws and rules is like you get a whole bunch of those, the more laws, the more loopholes. 
It's like, oh, I don't have to do that. I can, I can, I can, I can, I can find a technicality here why I don't have to do that. But that new covenant ethic of you want to know how to live? Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at the example he gave. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Like, it's like, oh, gosh, I usually know in that situation, hey, what should I do? Well, what does Jesus dying for you look like? I'm like, but I don't want to. Like, it's a lot easier, but man, is it demanding to say I'm dying to myself to what I want, to what I think I need so I can, I can love other people. It was that new covenant way of living. So the message to the Gentile Christians in Antioch and to us is Jesus alone. You wanna know what, what salvation is all about and being right with God and being welcomed into his kingdom? It's Jesus alone. You, you wanna know how you get included into this, this new covenant, this family uh, of God? It's, it's by faith in, in Jesus alone. If you want to know, like, how, how, do we, how do we get to unity within the church and to be a unified one body of Christ? It's by having our eyes fixed on Jesus alone. How do we live as followers of Jesus and what guides my life? I look to Jesus. I look to his cross. Like, that's, that's how I live. That was the message to the church in Antioch. That's the message to us today is my eyes are fixed on Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. I'm, like, everything is about him. It's always, always about him. To step in fully into that new covenant and not to not to abandon the old not to say it, it's not important the old is the old covenant what we would call the old testament is so useful it is chocked full of like the backstory of the jesus story it gives us context it gives us examples there's incredible things we can learn there's wisdom that we can glean from that it's useful but it's not foundational the foundation of our faith is jesus it's his life it's his death it's his resurrection The first century church was fueled by the new covenant message and the new covenant ethic. They were fueled by the message, the simple message they proclaimed to everyone was like people killed Jesus but God raised him and we have seen him and you're invited in. That was their message and it fueled them and that ethic that fueled them was the new covenant love as well. Like what made the early church so attractive was it was the only place in the world, it was the only place in culture that said everyone is on equal ground. Everyone is loved, everyone is welcome, God has done something for everyone. It was the only place where you could go and there wasn't, there wasn't this hierarchy. It was the only place that you can go where it's like, like children have value, they're not disposable, they're not property. Where, where men and women are on equal ground, there is no hierarchy here. We're, we're slaves and free people and masters and slaves and we're, hey, in the church, it doesn't exist. You're all brothers and sisters following a risen Savior and as Paul says in his letters, hey, there's no Jew or Gentile either. Like, we are all welcomed into what God is doing, and that was a message, and that was an example that they lived by that changed the world. It flipped the Roman Empire upside down, and it's been going ever since, and it fueled their faith, it changed their world, and and the invitation for us is to let it do the same thing. The new covenant ethic of the resurrection, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and living that cross-shaped life, man, it fuels, it can fuel your faith. If you're at a place where like, man, my faith is dead, I feel hopeless, there's like nothing, I don't know what's going on, I, I just, I wanna know God, but I don't know like what's going on with that man, like look, to, look no farther than the person of Jesus. Like just start diving and say, okay, Jesus, like you pray this prayer, Jesus, I wanna know who you are, I wanna know what you're like, and you pick up one of the gospels and start reading and just watch what the Holy Spirit will do in you. It's a simple message. It fuels their faith. It will fuel ours. And it changed their world. And maybe I'm just naive, but I don't think so. I think it can change ours too. I think it's the only thing that can. As we want to talk about healing, we want to talk about hope, we want to talk about, uh, 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 about this idea of unity and peace and all these things. Like, 
if it's not going to come from the message of Jesus, where else is it going to come from? It changed their world. It can change ours too. 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build my church, my gathering, and nothing, not even death, can stop it. And for 2,000 years, that promise is held true, and that promise is still true today, and we get to be a part of that. And so as there was an aftermath, as the world changed in light of the first century followers of Jesus, let's pray that God would do the same thing in our generation as well. God, we thank you for this, this amazing truth that you love us, that you revealed yourself to us through the person of Jesus. We don't have to guess about what you're like. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't have to rely on what somebody says about you. We don't have to rely on what we've been taught about you or, or, or just hope we're getting a picture, but we can look at the person of Jesus and know exactly who you are. And we can know exactly what you're like. We can know exactly what your heart is after. So God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus today. Where we see this incredible faith and message played out and and your followers in the first century and throughout generations, I, pl- I pray that you, would, that you would give us the same kind of faith, that through your Holy Spirit, you would empower us, that you transform us to live lives that look like you, that look like love as defined by your cross. We would die to ourselves every day. We die to what we want, what we desire, so that we can, that we can live for you and live for the love of those around us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.